You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, I speak with Hannah Calhoun. Hannah is the Vice President of Innovation for the Financial Health Network and runs the Financial Solution Lab. In her role, she leads efforts to uncover new ways to support innovators as they work to improve financial health and deliver quality services that treat communities with dignity. Hannah has more than 12 years experience building mission-oriented innovation systems. Previously, Hannah founded Blue Ridge Labs, an initiative inside the Robinhood Foundation that unites communities and technologists to build new tech platforms that address economic inequality. Hannah holds a BA in social studies from Harvard College and an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business. She lives in Dallas, Texas with her husband and two daughters, in her free time, she enjoys baking, hiking, and sci-fi novels. I wish I had asked her about the sci-fi novels. I'm looking for some good ones. We did discuss user-centric design and how to build trust to get good answers, for-profit versus non-profit models, measuring financial health and trends for the U.S., and the Financial Solutions Lab Accelerator Program and the participants, as well as trends in financial health startups. I think you'll enjoy this conversation, so please stay tuned. Hannah, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Miles. I'd love to dive right in by asking you, can a founder start a company in an area where they have not experienced the problem personally? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting and good question. I guess I would I would have two thoughts on that point. First, I think there's there's a lot of benefit to the founder having direct personal experience with the problem that they're trying to solve. You know, I, I think we believe really strongly that folks who have that lived experience and come from the communities that they're targeting often have a really interesting perspective on what the product should look like, not just in terms of the solutions themselves, but also how you build trust and access markets. And so whenever possible, we have a preference for funding folks who have that direct experience. All of that said, you know, there are, are lots of folks who are really excited to go out and solve big problems in the world. And, and I don't think that we, you know, want to say, no, if you haven't had this lived experience, you shouldn't be trying to get out there and build products or ventures that matter. You know, uh, before I found myself at the Financial Health Network, I ran a program called Blue Ridge Labs, which is inside the Robinhood Foundation. And the premise of that program was that part of the reason we weren't seeing software become the sort of transformational tool for low to moderate income populations across the country that it was for higher income earners was that there was this disconnect, as you're pointing out, between the folks who tended to build and fund technology startups and the folks who really experienced the challenges of accessing government benefits and um, finding affordable housing and thinking about navigating public school systems and the like. And, and we said, gosh, you know, the long-term sort of system-wide goal, right, would be to get to a place where so many more of our founders and so many more of the folks who are receiving venture capital investment are folks who are coming for those communities. But if you're a massively impatient person, which I am, you also want to figure out what you can do in the short term. 
And so what we landed on was this notion that, that we were going to build a program that could serve as a bridge where we'd bring in, you know, really talented, thoughtful founders who wanted to be building great products and services. And what we would do is just embed them and partner them up with communities and community members who had that lived experience. And so in every stage of their journey, from sort of the initial exploration of where the problems might be to the early product ideation to prototyping and building, they were in constant conversation and constant feedback loops with community members who brought that lived experience. And what we found over time is that many of them, you know, ended up building those practices and systems into the way that their ventures worked, right? They, they had this constant customer engagement process. Some of them set up advisory boards. Some of them have gone on actually to really prioritize hiring other members of the team who bring that experience. And I think in many cases, we've seen that that can be a very successful approach. So I think if you are a founder who hasn't had that lived experience, it's important that you, you sort of acknowledge that and you think about like, what are the processes or systems that I can build and who are the other people that I can bring into this process so that I'm not losing out on that very, very valuable perspective. That's great. You mentioned like talking to users, getting feedback. I would consider that typical user-centered design that people may do. I'm curious if there's any counterintuitive things that you learned or have learned that founders you know, can do to be successful learning about a new problem. Sure. I'm trying to think about counterintuitive things. I mean, I think most of them are the intuitive pieces, right? Which is, which is going out and talking, trying to like take on the problem yourself, right? I think making someone else's problem your problem is a really great way to understand it. And we've had, a, you know, I've funded a number of founders who've really taken that to heart. Maybe not counterintuitive, but I think one thing that folks sometimes underestimate the challenges of, right, is when, when we're going out to talk to users and we want to talk to them about issues that are potentially highly sensitive or highly important in their lives, right? Money, a vulnerable housing situation, you know, the, the amount of debt that they're trying to manage. If we're just walking into the room as sort of an interested stranger, like that requires a lot of vulnerability on the part of the user. And so some of the sort of traditional, you know, intercept conversations or sort of broad based survey groups don't necessarily get you to a level of trust that you would need for people to really open up and have those conversations in a fully honest way. And I think one of the things that we've really seen over time is that, that for those types of conversations, what you're really trying to build and invest in is sort of like a multi-touch point ongoing relationship with your users so that they can sort of get a sense of you and they can see you, you know, listening to them, taking their input, coming back in a thoughtful way. And that sort of slowly over time, you can like peel the layers of the onion on some of those topics. And so, so I do think sometimes when folks are who, you know, who have done a lot of user experience on other topics that are maybe like less personally sensitive come in, there's, there's sort of this desire to sort of move quickly through it and talk to a lot of people and that there's this benefit towards talking to many people one time. And I think with some of these topics that are, are sort of closer to the heart of people's, people's needs um, and their, their feelings of, of physical and financial and emotional security, you actually benefit from talking to a smaller number of people, but talking to them multiple times over. Ah, oh, that is really interesting. So you're saying don't be too impatient to get to the answer, spend more time building trust and you'll get better answers. I think that's right. You also mentioned founders taking on a problem. I certainly know a founder who started living on SNAP benefits, you know, food stamps as people know them, uh, in order to better serve that, that group. And that's a real commitment. That's a real commitment to take that kind of step. 
On, on the theme of impatience, I'm curious, you called yourself an impatient person and sometimes VC or innovation funding is often criticized for being too short-term oriented and wanting to exit in X number of years. Do you think that that mixes with serving a low-income population? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and there's an entire impact investing industry at this point that is testing that hypothesis in a very, a very, uh, you know, in various ways. You know, I think I think that there are businesses out there that can drive great impact that are a great fit for the venture capital model, and I think there are other businesses out there that can drive great impact that aren't. And I think part of part of our role and the role of other folks who sort of sit in the impact investment world, um, and particularly, you know, like folks like us who have the advantage of being able to use philanthropic dollars uh, to create sort of subsidies and supports for for early stage entrepreneurs who are maybe less, you know, who look less traditional and therefore are harder for traditional VCs to support. Like, I think there's a really important, but that's sort of a really important role in the market, right? So, you know, we, one of the programs I oversee at the network is the Financial Solutions Lab. Which, which is like very generously funded by the folks at J.P. Morgan Chase and Prudential, and we uh, use our accelerator program to make investments in early stage ventures that are driving towards improving the financial health of LMI communities and particularly increasingly uh, Black and Latinx communities, and. Part of what we see is that some of those early stage companies, uh, because of the problems that they're working on, because of the profiles of their founders, struggle to tap into that traditional VC ecosystem. And it may not be that they they can't, you know, that they aren't on a path to in a couple of years, but that, you know, for a whole host of reasons, some of which are related to systemic bias, that that philanthropic capital and impact-oriented capital plays an important role in getting them started in their early days and helping to de-risk them so that more traditional pools of institutional capital can then come later on in the process and really help them grow. And I do think we think that's an important part of, of our job. You know, uh, we fund both in the FSL portfolio and in the portfolio I used to run at Blue Ridge, we also fund a number of nonprofits, right, um, who are doing great things and building social technology platforms. So I don't think I don't think we've decided that the tech platforms that improve outcomes for low-income Americans have to happen in for-profit companies that are driving towards exponential growth and unicorn status, right? You know, I do think the ecosystem as a whole is asking itself some interesting questions with sort of the rise of the zebra movement around whether or not there's something in the middle of for-profit company that could have, you know, a great revenue track record and return capital to investors, but isn't on the trajectory that sort of matches with the way VCs typically think about the world. And I think that's a space we'll actually see a fair bit of sort of continued experimentation and innovation from a capital market sense over the next, call it like five years. It's interesting you mentioned the Zebra movement. We had one of the founders on the Startups for Good podcast, one of our previous episodes, people could find it on startupsforgood.com. Um, you also mentioned, you know, choosing nonprofit status versus for-profit do you have any sense when one makes more sense than the other and what makes a tech nonprofit different than a startup? Yeah. Um, you know, we, uh, my advice to founders is always like first figure out your product, right. And make sure you've got product market fit and then think about business structure as a strategic decision. It's most important to find a problem that people have and to come up with a way to solve that problem. That's compelling and, you know, and positive and is driving towards impact. 
And then there's sort of this different question about like, how then do you raise the money and attract the capital and earn the revenue over time to be able to take that product and grow it into a sustainable organization? The factors that folks are considering when they're thinking about making that choice, certainly there's some practical considerations around like, how big is the market that you're talking about? What do the revenue streams look like? And in particular, where do those revenue streams come from, right? Are you making money by charging your users a fee? Are you making money by taking a commission from, um, you know, sort of a B to B or B to B to C model? Are you making money by signing contracts with government agencies or other nonprofits, which will give you a sense of sort of if you're living in a world where something like venture funding or even, you know, small business funding is likely to be a good fit given the sort of economic prospects of the organization. I think there's also like reasonable questions, you know, about like who you're intending to partner with and who you need to work with to bring your solution to market. There are certainly situations where strategically it's really helpful to be a nonprofit organization, certainly in partnering with other nonprofits or with uh, local or state um, municipalities, uh, just given the way procurement requirements work out, there are benefits to delivering solutions through nonprofit channels. But you know, there are trade-offs too, right? For-profits and nonprofits raise money in wildly different ways. There are real differences in terms of the way compensation structures tend to be set up at those organizations. And so if you're building a social tech company as a nonprofit, you are competing for engineering talent against a bunch of for-profits who can offer equity. Um, so, you know, I, I think the founders that I've worked with have have been really thoughtful about sort of weighing the pros and cons of the different decisions, I think. And, you know, I think there, there are certainly great examples of like very successful tech nonprofits. But I do think that that there are challenges just given the way the sort of philanthropic and grant funding landscape tends to set up in terms of getting those folks the capital they need in early years to really build out platforms and get to that place where they're ready to go after growth. Going back a little bit, you mentioned uh, systematic bias in funding uh, for-profit tech startups. And I was curious if you were referring to bias around the founder or bias around the population served, the customer base, or something else. Yeah, I think it's both, actually, right? There was a study that came out maybe this year or last year from Crunchbase, I think, that showed that Black and Latinx founders raised two and a half, 2.6 maybe percent of all VC dollars in the US. You know, there have been lots of, there's been a fair bit of research, right, around like the, the portion of the VC money that's going to female founders. I do think there are, there are a set of sort of biases built into the way that we source and diligence and invest in ventures that, that do tend to leave certain populations of founders out or at least make it much more difficult for them to raise money. I think, you know, there has been a real focus on that over the last year and a lot of funds and, you know, a lot of philanthropic agencies and a lot of corporate CSR arms are like really thinking about ways in which we can address that capital gap. But certainly historically, if you look at the data, we're not doing a good job of, of being equitable in terms of the way we're funding founders. Like, so that's part one. I, I think part two, is certainly exactly what you're saying, which is that I do think that there are perceptions that you know low-income markets are harder to make money in and not attractive and won't support the sorts of companies that that investors are looking to back. I think some of that is is a set of assumptions about like what those customers are willing to pay um, or able to pay. And then I also think some of it is to the first question you asked me, right, about the sort of like 
familiarity bias that comes in when people are being asked to evaluate opportunities in spaces or related to products or problems that they don't have any personal relationship to, right? It's like really hard if you've never been on food stamps and you're a partner at a venture capital firm to know whether or not investing in a business that's all about helping people manage their food stamps is going to be a good and compelling idea. And you obviously have a responsibility to your LPs to deliver a certain return. And so that unfamiliarity and uncertainty can make the risk of that feeling attractive. You know, one of the things that I think I've been thinking a lot about, like both at the network and in my, my prior life is this question of, you know, how can we as an organization that supports a diverse set of entrepreneurs really working on problems we think are important, help with the creation of new patterns, right? So you'll hear people talk about in the venture space, they'll, they'll use, you know, great unicorn companies as a plug, right? We're going to become the, the Uber for dry cleaning, or we're going to become the Airbnb for bicycles, right? Um, and people, people like go back to these patterns, these easy mental patterns, when they're trying to think about whether or not a company is investable. And I think, you know, one of the jobs of organizations like the network and other folks in the impact investing space is not just to go out and find these great founders who are building great companies that are driving the impact, but then also to help amplify the narrative and su support and educate other investors in like thinking of those as being new patterns so that it can help people feel more comfortable putting capital into companies that are serving populations that maybe they don't think about as naturally, you know? And so that I, I do think is, is also a piece of the problem. Sorry, that was a long way to say, I think, I think both. A, a, the answer is C, all of the above. <laughs> I always love choosing the third option. Yeah, the, the unstated other choice. When you're talking about serving potentially vulnerable populations, I'm curious, what is the line between authentically wanting to help and taking advantage? How do you tell the difference? Yeah, you know, I think we... So I think there's a couple of pieces, right? One is um, as part of our diligence process, we spend a lot of time really trying to get to know founders and teams and understand what products they're building and what business model they're building, right? And, and what that business model implies in terms of, again, who's going to end up paying for the product or service and under what conditions are they paying? We always like to invest in companies where we feel like our target impact outcomes and their business outcomes are directly aligned so that as one goes up, the other goes up. Right. And, uh, but, but you don't always end up in those worlds, right. You end up in, in worlds where you say, gosh, I'm, I'm making a bet with the anticipation that the founders are going to stay on this path, you know, and, but like, but that there is a possibility for pivot. So I think that's one piece of it. I think the other thing is part of what the network brings to the table. And I think one of the ways we can be a really helpful partner for the companies that we support is a real focus on measuring the financial health impacts of products and services. So the network has a financial health scoring toolkit. We have a software tool that helps to automate financial health measurement. And all of the organizations that we're working with through our programs, we actually spend time with really understanding what are sort of the key indicators of financial health that you would expect might move on the basis of someone using this product or service, and then helping the companies really think about what their impact measurement plan looks like and build that in. And so it gives us a good chance to really talk to founders and talk to teams and say, okay, you know, you're building a product and the goal is for, you know, certainly the product to be successful, but like 
but like you're here and we have picked you and you know, you have chosen to work with us because you're really, you believe that what you want to be doing is improving people's financial health, right? Like help us help you put in place a system so you can collect the data to know if that's really happening or not. So I think that's a big piece of it too. And you were talking about financial health and it's in the name uh, of the network. I'm curious to what extent that's literal, metaphorical, and, and how you think about that intersection. You know, so I guess one thing I will say is I think the network has really embraced and um, I think the industry has really started to embrace this idea of financial health as opposed to financial inclusion, which when I first got into the work, everybody called it financial inclusion. And I think the move towards financial health is really positive in part because like if you think about yourself as a consumer or you think about, you know, anyone else as a, a user or a consumer of financial services, right? You don't just want to be included in stuff. You want those things to actually help you achieve your financial goals. It's not, you know, if, if we like could suddenly snap our fingers today and everyone in the United States had a bank account, but we were still in a place where more than 40% of the country would be unable to cover a $400 emergency, which is sort of what the Fed currently estimates in terms of the, the sort of portion of the country that doesn't have access to liquid savings. Like, would that be like, would, would the work be done? And I think, you know, I think generally we all agree that it wouldn't. And so, you know, financial health for me is really about like, do people have access to the tools and services and supports they need to build, build, build financial lives that then allow them to have the resilience to weather shocks, to pursue the opportunities, to like lead the lives that they want to lead. Right. And the network measures that across a whole host of subcategories, but they basically all roll up to these four major metrics around spending, saving, borrowing, and planning. So are people able to spend? Are they able to save? Can they borrow? Do they have a plan for the future? Are they thinking about long-term, both with respect to things like retirement, but also insurance and the ability to plan for, for unexpected emergencies? So, so it is about health. I think one of the other really helpful framings about saying you know health as opposed to inclusion is that you start to realize that financial health shows up in all of these different parts of, of people's lives and interactions. It's not just about, do you have a good relationship with a bank or are you, you know, using fintech tools on your phone, but your financial health is also really tied up in where you work and what benefits are provided by your employer. It's really tied up in the ways in which you access or don't access healthcare, right? Um, and the barriers to pay on that front, it's, obviously an enormous component about in terms of your ability to access like safe and affordable and consistent housing. And so I think, I think in turning towards financial health, we are, you know, acknowledging and appreciating and starting to think much more strategically about like, where are all of the places that different actors need to come together and make decisions to really help give people secure financial lives and how do we think of that secure financial life as then being a foundation for so many of the other things that individuals and families are trying to achieve? Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup 
where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget, and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build, and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. Is financial health improving? It's interesting. It's a really uh, interesting question. Um, so, so one of the things, so obviously the last year, year and a half at this point has been a, a, a really complicated time for people's financial lives, you know, as of last fall. So August of 2020, when we last put out the network last put out its pulse report, roughly two thirds of people in America were, were what we would consider financially vulnerable or financially coping. So they sort of are reporting healthy outcomes and only a few or some of the sort of indicators that we track. The thing that's interesting about that is that counterintuitively, overall financial health actually had improved since the past year. And like a number of the things that are driving that, of course, were stimulus policies, relief measures, you know, um, a lot of, of people's debt has uh, has been on, repayments have been on hold, right? Um, so there've been all these like temporary positive trends that make the numbers look like they've gotten a lot better over the last year. You know, we don't expect a lot of that to hold, but the other point that I would call out is that while on average things are getting better, it turns out that, that there's actually been an increase in disparity in the outcomes. So on average, things are improving, but actually those improvements are, are basically accruing to higher income, primarily white, primarily men. And so you're seeing that women, lower income households and communities of color are actually bearing the sort of financial brunt of the pandemic that you might expect. And, and so the, like, the high level story doesn't really doesn't really fully tell you what's going on. So, so I guess I would say, I think the verdict is still sort of out, you know, certainly we are, we're continuing to watch it closely. We've actually, you know, we have the network, as I said, puts out this pulse report and we're also starting to put out some digital quarterly updates, uh, which you can find on the organization's website. If you're interested in sort of the more real-time data, but yeah, I, you know, I, I like, if I just like think about what the sorts of things you see in the paper, right? And um, there's a real question, particularly with respect to the housing crisis of what's going to happen when all of the policies that have been holding back evictions over the last 15 months run out, right? But there's also some real bright spots. I think we're really excited to see what impact the, the new childcare tax credit has on low-income households in particular. Um, and so, you know, again, I think the research that'll come out over the next 12 to 18 months is really going to help us understand what the longer term impacts of this pandemic might look like. Have the products and services or the regulatory environment made the, the environment more healthy or less? You know, I think I'll take the second half first and then focus more on, uh, on the first half of the question. I certainly think regulation and policy have a major role to play in driving financial health. Um, certainly innovations from private 
organizations and nonprofits can sort of only take the ball so far. One thing that the Financial Health Network is really focused on right now is helping policymakers and regulators think about financial health measurement because we believe that what gets measured gets managed. And so, um, you know, we're really trying to figure out where are there other places that we can collect data to help inform national financial health measurement um, and are hoping that those sorts of efforts will continue. I think with respect to products, I, I definitely think that you are seeing new products and services that are showing up um, in the world that have the potential to be really positive for folks. Um, the financial, the fintech market has has been on a bit of a tear over the last 15 years. And so there are a lot of options out there. And I think part of what we're seeing now is some consolidation and a need to really focus on helping people understand which of those options are high quality and going to provide them, um, to your point earlier, with, with solutions that really drive improvement in their lives. But, you know, I like, I look at all this innovation and I like, I think we're starting to see really interesting examples of where innovation that's come from sort of disruptive fintechs is then translating into the incumbent market in ways that are really positive for folks. So, you know, one of the areas that the network does a lot of research on through our FinHealth spend report is, is the fees and interests that folks are paying in order to access financial services. And, you know, in 2020, households spent $255 billion on interest and fees. And much more of that money comes from low-income households. Basically, the you know it is expensive to be poor from a financial services perspective because if you are a lower-income customer who's got less money in a bank, you are actually paying more money to transact with your money than you are if you're a high-income customer. And like one of of those sets of fees, right, is overdraft fees. There have there's been a lot of innovation over the last couple of years, particularly in the fintech space, with digital players who are offering accounts that don't have overdraft fees. And, you know, one of the things that that just came out, I want to say this past week, is that Ally, which is a huge bank, has eliminated overdraft fees, right? Um, and they're not a huge player in the overdraft fee market. But, you know, I think our report had suggested that we think there's like $12.4 billion in overdraft fees that were collected across all the players in the industry last year. So that's a ton of money. And if these innovators who are offering overdraft fee free accounts are able to sort of push the market standard in such a way that you see folks like Ally and other large banks realizing that they need to eliminate overdraft fees to stay competitive, like that's $2.4 billion in fees that go back in the pockets of Americans across the country. And so I think from our perspective, we view that as a, a huge positive development. I think we're seeing sort of similar trends play out with respect to, you know, new methods of thinking about giving people access to their paychecks earlier, you know, different ways to think about small dollar credit or emergency savings programs. And so I do think the innovation is driving us to a good place, I, but certainly there's a lot more to come. You mentioned the Financial Solutions Lab earlier, and I'm curious if you could share more about the accelerator program and the types of companies that are coming out? Yeah, of course. So the uh, the accelerator is an annual program where, as I mentioned, we're looking to support early stage fintechs, both for profits and nonprofits, who are driving financial health outcomes for low to moderate income communities. This past year, uh, we've really been focused on identifying and supporting companies that are helping individuals and households come out of the pandemic and build more financial resilience. Um, and so, uh, you know, the companies span the gamut. There's, there's eight organizations this year, two of which are nonprofits. 
some of which are, again, in sort of the insurance and planning space. There's a couple that are focused on housing. We've got a, a number of companies that are focused on sort of thinking about debt management and other ways to access credit. And, you know, I mean, we're really excited about the new cohort. Last year, the, the program was really focused on meeting the needs of, of workers and students, recognizing that they were two groups that were hit particularly hard. And, and again, you know, I think both were seeing the individual companies themselves really driving exciting developments, but also that those companies are then a great channel for reaching consumers in need uh, when they, you know, when they need to. So like, so as an example, you know, one of the companies that we funded back in the very, very early days of the portfolio is this organization Propel. And they are a VC funded fintech that helps families who are receiving food stamps, as you mentioned earlier, manage, uh, manage their food stamps. That's sort of how they started helping people understand how much money was left on their snap card and um, how they've been spending their money and giving them access to coupons and deals to be able to stretch that money further. Over time, they've sort of built out a much more extensive platform with more features and supports. But one thing that was really exciting during the pandemic is that they partnered up with a group called Give Directly. And you know, they were able to see, because of the data stream that they had, which of the folks who were on their platform, and there are 5 million people on their platform across the country, which of those folks were really running low on their food stamps and, and likely to be facing you know, real food security issues. And they partnered with Give Directly to actually do direct cash transfers to folks that they were serving to pass money to families to help them get through the pandemic. And the Financial Health Network, along with a number of other philanthropic organizations, chipped in money to help support that effort. And so not only is that a great example of a place where, you know, we have supported a company from its very early days that has gone on to serve, to provide this like very positive service for millions of households across the country. But then that also creates this really interesting sort of like quickly responsive distribution channel for pushing out aid or supports as these emergency situations arise. And so like, that's one example I would call out specifically. If it's helpful, I can, I can chat about a couple of the other companies that are sort of younger and in the current cohort. But, but you know, I think that's, that's sort of like that sweet spot of a place where, you know, they're building a great business and serving lots of people, but also we really feel great about the impact that they're having and feel like it creates a platform for longer term impact, long, blah, longer term impact and experimentation is like very much what we're trying to, the, so, the sort of company we're trying to focus on. Yeah, that's a great story. I'm a big fan of Give Directly. If people don't have money, maybe just give them some. Makes sense to me. Uh, Upsolve is one of the ones that's been in a recent batch and co-founder Jonathan Betts has recorded an episode with us. I don't know if it's going to come out before or after this one. Oh, great. But, um, excited about that. Any other stories that you want to share? Happy to hear them. Yeah. I will not talk about Upsolve since you've already got a podcast coming though. I will note that Upsolve, Upsolve started at Blue Ridge Labs and is now in the Financial Health Network portfolio. So it's a, a wonderful moment for me of having things come full circle. And I think the work Jonathan and Rohan have done is, um, is like truly wonderful and impressive. You know, I, gosh, there are so many, I, there are, <laughs> the, the cohorts that this year is so great. Um, so, you know, I think we are two maybe trends that I'll talk about. Um, so the first is, is being really interested in financial organizations that are focused on serving targeted populations. So two of the organizations that we're funding in this year's cohort, Daylight, which is focused on 
um, supporting the LGBTQ community. And then Sigo Seguros, which is an insurance provider, but that's starting out with a focus on, on Latinx drivers who are looking for auto insurance, are really good examples of a trend that we're seeing emerge in the market where you've got you know, founders who are saying, okay, you know, these services exist generically, but actually the, the products that are being offered and the, the, the experience that's being offered and the relationships that are being built through sort of a generic financial services provider, like aren't fully meeting the needs of this particular segment of the population. And we think that actually there are different products and a different approach and different marketing channels and a different customer experience will be more successful for these folks. And I think we're really interested in that as an emerging trend, particularly because we know, as I mentioned earlier, that financial health outcomes are, you know, there are big gaps across groups. And so if there's an opportunity to build versions of, of product categories that are better targeted to and likely to be more effective and taken up by and used by some of these groups who are, you know, who are struggling with sort of financial health access gaps, like that for us is a really sort of interesting evolution of the market. What's missing? Like if there's an aspiring founder out there listening and you're, you're thinking, oh, I wish I'd seen someone tackling this area. What is that? Ooh, that's such a fun question. Or any suggestions on how an aspiring founder should go about identifying a problem area to focus on? The answer to the second question is always, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, which is that I certainly think folks, you know, there are great research reports available. You know, the Financial Health Network has a number of them. There are other folks who put out great market studies and sort of say, here's the state of the market and here are the gaps and here are the places that, you know, the people are, are not feeling like they have what they need. And that's like a fine place to start. But I always tend to lean heavily towards like going out and talking to humans. So I think, you know, if, if you're an aspiring founder and this is a space of interest, I think the thing to do is, is to go out and, and spend time with people and spend time in communities. And if there's an issue that you're really passionate about, or you'd like to see if there's a way that, that you could build, build a product that could solve the problem, like put yourself in the middle of it. And maybe that looks like finding a local organization that works on it and going and spending time volunteering there. Or maybe it, it means going out and spending time talking to folks who are already in your community or already in their network at a, about a particular challenge. But, but I always sort of suggest folks go to the source. In terms of, of other things, you know, I think we are, we continue to be really interested in, in solutions that are thinking about sort of protection against shocks, just because we know what a, what an enormous effect those shocks can have on families' financial health and their longer term financial mobility. Um, we're also seeing a lot of um, interest in the space and we have a lot of interest in the space around this idea of, you know, understanding what it would take to close the racial wealth gap. And, and that is a problem that does not just require products, but also requires systems. But I think is, is an area that where there's just a lot of interest from us and other investors. Um, and then finally, I'll note, you know, I think one real theme that we're starting to see is, is the success of platforms that are helping users navigate or sort of interface with complex systems and institutions. So you mentioned Upsolve as an example, right, of, of an organization that's really said, okay, the bankruptcy system is, is big and complex and it's full of legalese. And, and there are like both financial barriers to people being able to help to, you know, hire an attorney to help them through it. But also if you're not a bankruptcy attorney, the process is intimidating and overwhelming. 
right? You know, we've gotten really good at building like lovely human centric accessible software to help people navigate complex bureaucratic elements of their lives in a whole host of other spaces. And I think there's a real opportunity to think about where that type of software intermediary can really help lower income households who often are engaging with, with big institutions and bureaucratic processes much more often than high income earners. Right. So user centric software products that help you get the benefits from government or take advantage of a program. Yeah. I mean, I just think about, you know, and there are, again, there are systemic and structural barriers to this as well, but, but if you're a, a lower income American, you may be, you know, you, we've, we've talked about food stamps, but there are housing vouchers. There are childcare vouchers. There are other requirements. You may be trying to think about like how you manage your student loan or how you think about career, you know, career trajectories in various ways or their certification programs. I just think there's a lot of the systems through which we provide social supports are, are extremely complex and hard to navigate. And to the extent that software can be a helpful navigation tool for getting people, for helping people feel empowered through that process and getting them to better outcomes, that that's still an opportunity that remains reasonably untapped. Yeah, thank you for that. As you were talking about it, I was thinking about my experience volunteering with VITA, helping mm -hmm. people claim earned income tax credit and it's an amazing experience. You sit with someone for 30 minutes, maybe more. And by the nature of the tax forms, you're asking them some pretty personal questions about mm -hmm. who they live with and who their kids are and where their kids live and who pays for them. And sometimes, given the nature of the interaction, they're almost, you know, they're inclined to trust you. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they can't get the thing done. And sometimes they start telling you other stories while you're working. And if there's something at the intersection of volunteering and helping people get benefits, as you were talking about, that's one that comes to mind for me that, that has been good experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that VITA moment, I mean, is such an interesting moment of opportunity as well, right? Um, tax time is such an important moment in someone's financial year. You know, I, I, I think there's also interesting questions around whether or not there are more things we could be doing with people in that moment when they're filing for taxes or when they're planning for how they're going to spend their, their return, you know, more to make sure that in that moment, we're also checking to see if they're receiving the other sorts of benefits and supports that they'd be eligible for on the basis of the information they're submitting from a tax time perspective. So yes, I think that's exactly, it's a great example of, of the sort of place you could put yourself to really have some great conversations with people and start to see if you're identifying patterns or insights or sort of like, you know, finding something you want to unpack and get excited about. Any other advice you would give for aspiring founders? I mean, so outside of the get out of the office and talk to people, which we've talked about a bunch, I think, I think the other piece of advice I would give them is, is to like not think of it as needing to be a solo journey. I think sometimes there's this mythology of the the like amazing visionary solo founder who goes out and builds the the unicorn from scratch on the spot, you know? And I would say like, particularly when you are, when you're building any sort of company, but particularly if you're building a company where part of what you're trying to do is, is drive impact and engage with communities and, and, you know, most likely other stakeholders in the space that uh, it takes a village and, and starting a company 
can be a lonely roller coaster of a journey. So I think you're going to want the village, right? And whether that's going out and finding folks who can be advisors or finding folks who can support you in part-time ways, or even going out and finding a community of other folks who are founders that you feel like you have a peer group that you can come back and connect to. I, you know, I think a big piece of, of what we can offer both the companies we, you know, the companies we invest in through FSL is, is, is that peer group, that cohort of companies, the prior companies who've come through and have been alum, sort of the, the participation in the community. And because the financial health network is a network and has, you know, hundreds of members who are also big companies and credit unions and nonprofits and all of the rest, also the ability to really connect with other folks who, who exist in the same space and, and get the feedback and build the connections. And so, um, yeah, I guess that would be the other piece. It's like, you know, even, even in the early days, it's never a bad idea to go find a couple of people you can bounce ideas off of who can serve as your kitchen table of sorts, because it is a, a long and challenging journey to get from the very beginning of these things to something that looks like an exit, if that's what you're looking for. Um, and there's no need to do it alone. Don't do it alone and get out of the building. Talk to users. Both great pieces of advice. Any other book, article, website, podcast you would recommend to aspiring founders? Yeah, I mean, I selfishly have to say you should get on and check out the Financial Solutions Lab. And if you're doing anything related to financial health, you should come work with us. Beyond that, I guess I would say like, if you are not already a total design geek, that everyone should read the design of everyday things, because I think it it sets up a useful framework for, for, for setting out what the experience of engaging with a product should be like. How about that? Well, that is a book that opens up your mind to wonder at the world. I oh, it does. I love that book. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. You then wander around the world judging every every door and every kitchen stove and every everything. So um, so I, I love that book. I don't know how useful it is for founders, but I think in terms of setting a philosophy for for what good product design looks like and how you should, the, like the sort of experience you should want to to create for a user, I think it it's part of the canon. And the author for a long time had a great blog. I haven't checked it out in a few years, but I'm sure you could find the archives. In closing, where can people follow you online? I'm on LinkedIn. I am, I am not a Twitter person, <laughs> but the Financial Health Network has accounts on, on most of the major platforms and we push all of the updates about the Financial Solutions Lab there. We've also got a, a blog on the Financial Solutions Lab webpage where you know both me and the rest of the team writes about sort of trends we're seeing in the market, like announces sort of exciting things about projects that we're supporting, and also tries to pull in research that connects to our work from the broader network, or you know sort of respond to things that we're seeing in the space from a current events perspective. So those are probably the best places to look. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces.com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website, 